Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, it's Manveen. We've got a special Friday treat for you today. I'm going to be handing the reins over to my colleague Tom Schoen, the film critic for the Sunday Times, who's managed to do an exclusive interview for this podcast with the legendary director Christopher Nolan. On a mild day in February of 2000, I was sitting at a diner in Los Angeles, just a few streets over from Sunset Boulevard. There was a new film that was just starting to get some buzz in Hollywood, and I was there to meet the young man behind it. This man was new to Hollywood. This would be his first American feature, and with it, he was trying out a bold new idea. He was going to make a film told backwards. Who would make a film with such a fiendishly difficult premise? The man who took a seat opposite me was a polite 30-year-old Englishman with fair hair and pale blue eyes with a slightly abstracted air, like someone solving complex math problems in his head. And as he picked up his menu, I couldn't help but notice that he leafed through it backwards. Neither of us knew at the time how Memento would do at the box office. He'd only just secured distribution for it after a battle lasting over a year. So he had an air of relief about him, but also of quiet confidence. By the end of its run, Memento would gross $40 million. From there, Christopher Nolan's career went basically vertical. His 10 films since have grossed over $6 billion, making him the most successful British filmmaker since Alfred Hitchcock. His latest film, Oppenheimer, has grossed nearly a billion dollars on its own and been nominated for 13 Oscars. We've stayed in touch since that first diner chat, eventually collaborating on a book, The Nolan Variations, which covered his 20-year career. In the course of it, Nolan has become a franchise unto himself, one of the very few filmmakers who can walk into a studio with an original idea for a movie and walk out with the 200 million necessary to make it. And no matter the subject, the setting, or the musical score, there is always something palpable in each one of his films, some indefinable quality that stamps it as a Nolan creation. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Tom Schoen, today in conversation with Christopher Nolan.
welcome to Stories of Our Times, Chris, and many congratulations on all the success you've had with Oppenheimer. Thank you. We met for lunch just before the film came out, and I asked you how well you thought it might do. And even accounting for a certain amount of false modesty, I sensed you were genuinely shocked about what happened next, were you? I think all of us involved with the film uh, were pretty shocked by the level of connection and excitement it seemed to generate with audiences, particularly younger audiences. I mean, yeah, it's been quite a ride. It's been very thrilling. You know, you don't go into a project like this without some some sense that it could find an audience and it could do well relative to the budget. But I think for both Emma and myself, even in our most optimistic scenarios, there was no sense that it could do anything like what it, what it has done. It's been quite a phenomenon and that's been a, a crazy ride for us. Mm. We met in much the same way right before Memento came out, you know, over 20 years ago. Did the first night nerves get better with time? No, I mean, I think it's it's always it's always a moment of great tension, but it's exciting as well. You know that that thing of putting your baby out into the world and and hoping for the best. But no, I wouldn't say it gets any easier. I think it I think it's always um, one of the hardest things about making a film is then finally having to let it go and put it out to the audience. Mm. And how are you finding the visibility of awards season? You must be doing more public speaking than at any other point in your career. Uh, certainly done a fair amount of public speaking at this point. If you remember when Oppenheimer came out, right before we released it, as we were doing the, the premiere in London, in fact, the SAG uh, called it strike. And so the actors had to walk off the red carpet and I was sort of left to, um, you know, open the film and do the last week of promotion myself. So, uh, yeah, my public speaking career really kicked off with that last week, you know, before the film came out. Um, you know, it's always, it's fun to talk about something you've worked on for as long as, as we have. And, and in the case of Oppenheimer, unlike some of my other films where they're purely my invention, this is not my story. You know, this is a piece of history. And, and so its interest for me hasn't really abated. I mean, I'm talking about the film, yes, but I'm also talking about uh, the history and the people involved with the history. Usually when you're promoting a film, you reach a point of saturation where you've kind of told all the stories there are to tell about your own work on the film. In the case of Oppenheimer, there's a lot of wider issues. And so it's, it's been fun to talk about. I mean, J. Robert Oppenheimer is such a controversial figure with such a dark glamour to him. I mean, I know that Kai Burden, Martin Sherwin's biography gave you lots of great material, you know, but books are one thing and films are another. What was the hardest thing about adapting the book to the screen? The biggest challenge, in a way, is to, you, you have to have that moment of, of boldness where you own the story yourself. Kai and Marty's book is an extraordinary piece of work. It was 25 years in the making. It's over 700 pages. It has all of the information you could possibly want. And, and that gives you a lot of confidence. The key of the adaptation is that in order to compress it, in order to make it work for an audience, you have to interpret. You have to start taking risks and start putting your own personal interpretation on the story. And you have to kind of get over that trepidation to do so, you know, that feeling of, well, I'm manipulating history or I'm over-interpreting history or, you know, picking and choosing amongst the facts. You know, I wasn't making a documentary. And so for the film to work, 
as a drama for it to work as a piece of hopefully engaging entertainment for the audience. I have to own it the way that I have any of my films. Mm. So at a certain point, I have to start writing as if as if I'd invented the whole story. Is that why you wrote it in the first person? Because it's very unusually written. And so normally scripts are in the third person, but in terms of like literally airdropping you into the story. You know, writing in the first person was, I mean, it was really the answer to me as to how to, to create the appropriate subjectivity while I was writing the script. I knew that I wanted to film to be as intensely subjective as possible. And when I was writing the script, I kept finding myself, I, I don't know, I was sort of unhappy with the form, I guess, of the screenplay. When I started changing the stage directions and rewriting them so they were in the first person, so, you know, rather than Oppenheimer comes into the room, sits down, takes off his hat, you know, it's, I came into the room, sat down, you know, took off my hat. That immediately started to really open up a connection for me with the character that presented the appropriate aspiration. I mean, a screenplay is a document that you're sharing with your cast and crew to communicate to them what the film is supposed to be, how the film's supposed to work in a way. And mm. having the script in that form, it kept me constantly reminded while we were shooting uh, and indeed, while we we're editing, when we would reference the script, you, you're constantly reminded of the purpose, you know, the, the focus mm -hmm. of the screenplay in the color sequences to be as utterly subjective as possible. So my director of photography, Hoyter van Hoytema, for example, you know, he's reading it that way on the day as we're consulting our scripts. And so all of the choices, things like, you know, where to put the camera, frankly, all of those things start to be based as they should be in this case, on putting you into Oppenheimer's way of looking at whatever scene it is that you're shooting. Now, I heard that the ending of the film came to you at, a, at an unusual moment. Can you tell me about that? Well, endings are crucial in, in film, theatrical film. It's one of the things that really distinguishes it from television, for example. You know, you can get kind of two-thirds of the way there with a movie, but if you don't have the appropriate ending for the, the story you're telling. You know, the audience will leave the, the theater unsatisfied. So I, I like to try and figure out the ending before I'm too far along with the actual writing. I need to know where I'm going. And in the case of Oppenheimer, the entire sort of last couple of minutes of the film, those last few scenes, sort of came to me as I was falling asleep one night. And I, I've learned over the years that if you have a great idea in the middle of the night, you really have to just get up and go and write it. So I did, I went, went down to my mm -hmm. office and sat there and wrote it out longhand. And fortunately, the next morning I could still read my handwriting and it still made sense. It wasn't some, you know, half-assed dream I'd had. It actually worked. Uh, and what I wrote that night is pretty much exactly how the film came out. Alvin, when I came to you with those calculations, we thought we might start a chain reaction that would destroy the entire world? Mm, I remember it well. What happened? I believe we did.
Has it ever worked that way with any of your other films too, you know, knowing the ending in advance or a fair way into the writing of the film? It's really worked that way on all of my films. But sometimes, you know, that comes about as a process of just following the natural threads of the story in a very conscious way. Sometimes it's a more more like Oppenheimer. I think the end of Dark Knight Rises, I sort of dreamt the end of the, the film and then, you know, got up and wrote it down. You know, these things come to you in different ways. And I think in all these cases, the endings tend to come to me as the result of months and months of really just pounding away at the story and, and concentrating on mm-hmm. it fully. Mm. Now, I've seen your office and it's a shambles. It's, <laughs> it's a oh, steady um, on. Do you write everything there or do you ever go anywhere else to write? I mean, I've done I've done my writing different ways over the years. I, I used to travel a lot to write. In the case of Oppenheimer, I wrote most of it in my my office, which is yeah, varying degrees of shambolic. I suppose at the moment it is a bit of a mess. I usually hit the road at some point just to sort of free up my mm. thinking. And in the case of Oppenheimer, I wrote some of it here in London actually, and then some of it I wrote in Los Alamos. You know, I took a trip with my youngest son Magnus, and we. We drove to Los Alamos because they felt that I needed to really see it and kind of touch the history, if you like. And that was actually very inspiring. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty glad I did it. And, and indeed, we wound up filming in, in some of those real locations that I got to see on that trip. What was inspiring about it in particular when you went to Los Alamos? There's something about, you know, walking the streets that Oppenheimer himself actually walked and General Groves walked, going to Fuller Lodge, for example, which is the meeting hall. And that was inspiring. And I think the scene in Fuller Lodge following the, the bombing of Hiroshima was very influenced by actually sort of being there in the real space. It's too soon to... It's too soon to determine what the results of the bombing are. But I'll bet the Japanese didn't like it. I'm so proud, so proud of what you have accomplished. I also went, you know, on the the tour of the different spots in town, including Oppenheimer's house. I actually, once the tour was over and everyone had left, I just quietly hopped the fence and took some pictures, you know, through the windows and was really struck by the fact that the interior hadn't changed at all, um, mm. really hadn't been modified since since the Oppenheimers had lived there. You know, the rest of the town is modernized. There is a Starbucks there. There are modern stores there. So there's not a lot that you can film there on the streets. So Ruth de Jong, my, my designer and myself, we realized we would have to build a set of Los Alamos. We built an exterior Los Alamos set and... Really, towards the end of our pre-production phase, Ruth realized, you know, she went and looked at Los Alamos and realized that there were several really, really key interiors that were unchanged. So we wound up shooting a lot of the interiors there. And that I think for the actors, it was great. I mean, for Killian and Emily to you know, walk into the real Oppenheimer's house and, 
you know, tread those real floorboards. I think it's just a connection with the reality of it that I think it gave everybody confidence that we were on the right track somehow. I know you like to deliver your scripts to the actors yourself. When you turned up on the doorstep clutching the script for Batman Begins, I think Michael Caine mistook you for a courier. Um, And it's something you still do to this day. Why do you do that? Well, I mean, it started off really for reasons of security. I mean, I certainly don't want to email scripts, you know, that you're trying to keep secret and so forth. It's also a very good way of getting an immediate concentrated read from an actor that you're really interested in, in talking to about it. And when you've just finished the script and only shown it to a handful of people, showing it to actors, talking about their, their immediate response to it, looking them in the eye and kind of seeing how they've responded to it, what the emotion is at the end of it, it's very, very helpful for me in my rewriting process and, and in my casting process. And the performances in your films have you know, been extraordinary. You know, One thinks of Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight and now... Killian Murphy and Robert Downey Jr. and Emily Blunt are all being recognized for their work on Oppenheimer, which is the biggest cast you've worked with, I think, with 79 speaking parts. Do you socialize much with your actors? No, I mean, I, I, you know, when we're shooting, I tend to focus very much on the work. Robert Downey Jr. convinced me to go out to dinner one night, I think, and that was fine, but as he would term it, under protest. No, I think I think Killian as well is the same, actually. We tend to be a little bit monastic, really, in the shooting period, um, not out of any sense of unfriendliness or anything. But you, No, it tends to be a very intense relationship that I have with the actors, but it's very work-focused. It's a very intimate, intense relationship, but really in the context of this kind of crazy run that we're on to, to get the film finished. So... Yeah, for that reason, it, it's an intense period that I'm working with the actors. Um, when the film's finished and I'm able to show it to them, you know, eight months, nine months later or whatever, that's a bit more relaxed generally. Like many people, I was very moved by your acceptance speech at the Golden Globes uh, where you referenced your previous time on that stage accepting a posthumous award for Heath Ledger. The only time I've ever been on the stage before was accepting one of these on behalf of our dear friend Heath Ledger, and that was complicated and, and challenging for me. And in the middle of speaking, I glanced up and Robert Downey Jr. caught my eye and gave me a look of love and support, the same look he's giving me now, the same love and support he's shown so many people in, in our community over so many years. That sounded like an important moment on the road to casting him in Oppenheimer, was it? I mean... Yes and no. It's a funny thing that these things sort of come back to you when you realize that they've been somewhere in the back of your mind, I think. It's more that. Uh, it wasn't something that I was consciously thinking about. Uh, I've admired Robert Downey Jr. for a very long time. Like a lot of directors have known what a fabulous actor he is. And it was wonderful to see him you know, take on the mantle of the movie star and, and really become the sort of huge force in in our industry that he was always meant to be, I think. But I think, like some other people who, who knew how talented he was, I was very, very excited to see him take on a more realistic role, really trying to lose himself in a character and, and you know, just express those, those human qualities and sort of almost put the movie star charisma to one side. That I was very excited to see, and indeed... 
to work with him and, and watch him engage in that process was really one of the most rewarding things I've, I've been involved with. Coming up. Three or four weeks into the edit, the film, you know, had chunks that started to feel indigestible. And that, you know, that, that can be a scary thing on a big budget film where you, you know that it has to work for a wider audience. That's in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What's the biggest disaster you've ever had filming? And by disaster, I mean unforeseen event or act of God that throws the production plan sideways. Gosh, I mean, too many to to pick any one, honestly. A lot of them tend to be weather-related, you know. Certainly filming in Iceland, both times of filming in Iceland, at some point we've been hit by windstorms. I mean, on Interstellar, we had you know hundred mile an hour winds that that literally lifted the, the asphalt of the roads in great chunks, and you know threw them around the place and sort of you know shut us down and wound up you know we did some shooting in the in the car park of the hotel that kind of thing. So, but you you try to foresee the unforeseeable. You try to build in a plan for when things are going to go wrong for reasons that, that you don't anticipate. Part of the greatness of, of the crew, what defines a great crew, is the ability to roll with the punches and change plans. You know, in the case of Oppenheimer, we did almost everything on location. and We'd intended to do pretty much everything on location. I had found a place to shoot the, the White House scene, which is so important to the film. And I had booked, you know, Gary Oldman in for a very specific time period to shoot that. And then we lost the location. And that very often is a thing that throws production into a tailspin. Fortunately, Ruth and her team, they had put a, 
a standing set, or, or rather a set that had been packed up of the White House. They had put one on hold just in case of an emergency, and they were able to throw it up and, and get it painted and get it all you know, plastered and everything in, in just a matter of days, which is you know pretty remarkable. But those are the kind of things that, as I say, if you have a great crew and you have a great team, they're able to pull off, and that's how you, you sort of you keep on moving forwards because the economics of film production are so so extreme. You're paying so many people each day costs a fortune. So the cost of not shooting, not shooting something is pretty considerable. And what about when you're editing? What's the scariest moment you've had in the editing room? Well, I think, you know, every film has its challenges in, in the edit. In the case of Oppenheimer, it mm. was a lot of characters, enormous amount of dialogue. And it required a, a sort of change of approach for me. Um, I had to really just embrace the dialogue scenes and really try to view them and their internal rhythms as, in a way, the action sequences of the film, the, the excitement of the film. And the advantage I had in that is that at the script stage, I had chosen to base the middle act of the film very much on, on the conceit that it's like a heist film, that the Manhattan Project could be viewed as as the sort of ultimate heist. And then the third act is, is based on the drama of the courtroom. Mm. In both genres, the advantage you have there is they're genres in which the audience listens. The words themselves are the excitement. They're the entertainment of the genre. The good thing is mm. in the edit suite, you're not then fighting the exposition. You're actually able to really embrace it and, and enjoy it with the audience. Because mm. you had a big exposition crunch on Inception, if I remember mm. rightly. In the editing room, yeah, every film has its has its crunch one way or the other. But Inception was certainly a very severe one. About three or four weeks into the edit, the film, you know, had chunks that started to feel indigestible, and that, you know, that, that can be a scary thing on a big budget film, where you you know that it has to work for a wider audience. Yeah. And you know, in that case, I mean, that was Lee Smith editing that, and we just sort of had to work through it by taking a scene with significant exposition and, and really just cutting it in half and leaving a lot out, which mm. which is, you know, can be very hard, particularly when I write, I try not to include exposition that isn't you know, technically necessary. So when you start to cut it in half, you're leaving things out. You're, you're letting things be ambiguous that weren't ambiguous. You're sort of not specifying things. But I've also learned over the years that saying something once clearly to an audience is is generally going to land better than saying it three times a little less clearly. So, so sometimes taking out the repetition of ideas actually clarifies. Uh, but it, it can be a hard thing to arrive at. You have to really struggle in the edit suite. It gets very difficult and very tense. One of the other things that's unusual about the way you work, I think, is that you work very, very closely with your composers and much earlier in the process than is usual, frequently asking them to score a film without having seen the finished film. Why is it that you work like that? What does that get you? Well, I have to go to the composers early because I don't use temp music. So what that means is in the edit suite, I'm not taking existing soundtracks from other films or existing music of any kind and, and using it as an indicator to the composer of what I want. And the reason for that is if you edit to a piece of music that you're not then going to be able to put on the film, you're not allowing the music to be part of the film in a really fundamental way. 
I like music that is absolutely necessary to the film and is part of the film's DNA. I don't view music as a sort of source to put on the ice cream sundae at the end of the process or something. So I involved the composer before I've even started a film so that I'll have demos. You know, Ludwig Göransson working on Oppenheimer, I mean, he did an enormous amount of work before we went off to shoot. And so I was able to listen to those tracks, you know, as I was driving to set in the mornings, those kind of things. And they start to work their way into your emotional connection with the scenes that you're shooting. Am I right that you oversaw some of the orchestral recording yourself on Interstellar with Hans Zimmer in one studio and and you in the other? Yeah, we had a, a huge amount of recording sessions on that on that film. It was a very complicated score, and Hans and I were determined to sort of do it right and really explore everything with live musicians, even though his demos, those demos were incredible and were very, very close to the, the finished score. But we felt that it would be worth the effort to find a real organist to play the organ parts, to find all these orchestral players and just explore what they could do with the material, how they could interpret it. So it was a very, very complex process and very intense. But the results, yeah, the results were, were fabulous and extraordinary. explore things until you literally you know pull the, the film away from him you know <laughs> he'll just keep going forever <laughs> he would keep going forever if he could and so certainly on the dark night when we were scoring that film i remember the scoring sessions ended after days and days of, i mean incredible work from the orchestra i finally just said to hands okay we're going home we're done you know because he would have gone on forever <laughs> I've heard that you sometimes will uh, sneak into a screening of a film once it's finished just to see how it's going down with an audience. How did the audience react when you first saw them absorb the atomic blast in Oppenheimer? Well, for me, it's always important to find a way to experience the film with a, with a paying audience, with a real audience. And it's always a little scary to sneak it to the back. And in the case of Oppenheimer, where you went to the IMAX theater in, in New York, snuck into the back just as the Trinity test was going off. And so it was dead silent, and every seat was was filled. There were actually people sitting on folding chairs in the back, that kind of thing. It was absolutely packed. And in that moment where the blast was going off, where there's more or less silence or just breathing on the soundtrack, that's a very tense thing for a filmmaker to watch. You're trusting the audience a lot because it, it really only takes one person in the audience to deflate that moment, you know, with a comment or whatever. But gratifyingly everybody was absolutely wrapped and, and locked on and, and very intent on the experience and that was a pretty magical thing yeah. to see 
Yeah, that's where you're praying nobody opens a packet of crisps. Does the film sort of get handed over to the audience at a certain point? Does it, does it, does it become the audience's? Well, the way I like to term it is the audience, for me, the audience finishes the film. So you work on the film, mm. you go through all of these different stages of what the film is and how it's developing. The final part of that process is to put it out into the marketplace and give it to the audience and they tell you what it is and they, they really finish the film for you in that, in that sense. And that's why, you know, to go back to your first question, I mean, that's why it's a frightening moment because in a way you're sort of finding out what it is that you've done. Mm. After the, to take you back to the beginning, in fact, after the screening of Memento at the uh, Venice Film Festival, you and the cast all went to dinner and proceeded to have a two-hour argument over who should be believed at the end of the film. Um, and this was two years after you'd finished the thing. Why do you think people become so obsessed uh, with your films, do you think? I mean, it's, it's always a slightly tricky question for, for me because to make the films, I have to be very obsessive about them. You know, I'll, I'll be asked that if somebody's seen a film of mine dozens of times and really put a lot of thought into it and lots of theories... I can relate to that. And the reason I can relate to it is because that's what I had to do to make the film. And yes, it, it, it's very rewarding to learn that, that somebody has become as tangled in a narrative as, as I was when I was making it. Um, in a way, it feels illogical to me that, that somebody would. But I think if, if there's a particular thing to the approach, you know, I do like films that you would be inclined to, to watch again, for some reason, either because they have a particular visual density in the case of Ridley Scott, who's a filmmaker I greatly admire. I always found his films have always had incredible visual detail that, that rewards multiple viewings, or, or narratively. I think for me, it's, it's been probably a little more in the narrative direction, trying to create a dense enough narrative that once you know the whole story and you have the whole sort of picture in your mind, if you watch it again, you'll see it in a different way and it'll take on a, you know, a, a different aspect, really. You know, those are the kind of stories I'm drawn to. So those are the kind of films I try to make. A lot of your films deal with time in its various aspects, from Memento through Inception and the Dunkirk. Has your relationship with time changed at all over the years? No, I'm still living in it. and <laughs> It's still ticking along relentlessly. <laughs> I'm still probably less, a, a little bit less of it. <laughs> It seems to be a little bit less of it ahead of me, a bit more of it behind. No, I, I think uh, I think it continues to be interesting to me to explore time in cinema. I think cinematic narrative and the way in which it naturally compresses or expands time uh, sort of effortlessly, really, and the way in which the memory of a film, the, the narrative experience of a film, once it's finished, is very different to that experience that you were having as you watched it, that's a fascinating thing to me. And it really mm. connects back with what I was talking about, about endings and why endings are so important. Because you watch a film in a linear way. The film spools through the projector at 24 frames a second and your brain absorbs these images one after the other after the other. But when the film ends, it's almost like a sort of domino topple back through the film that realigns what it is that you've just seen in some way. When it ends, 
you reassess what you've seen and it sits differently and even your sense of the time of it sits differently. Well, this has been a pleasure. Christopher Nolan, thank you very much for your time. Sorry we both of us have a little less of it than when we started. And uh, best of luck with the BAFTAs on Sunday. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times with me, Tom Schoen, and my guest, the filmmaker Christopher Nolan. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer was Fiona Leach, and the sound design was by Mao Lasetto. My book, The Nolan Variations, is published in paperback in March with a new chapter on Oppenheimer. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.